0: Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. All right, good morning, Wildwood. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. While you're turning there, I want to speak on behalf of all the pastors here at Wildwood and say thank you for uh, the effort that you made this month, this past month, uh, Pastor Appreciation Month I feel very appreciated. I am certain that the other pastors do as well. Uh, the letters that you wrote, the tokens of your appreciation, the meals that you made, we just want to say thank you for uh, demonstrating and showing your appreciation for us as pastors. It is a difficult job, but it is a calling that is worthwhile. And last month, you helped it make even make it even more worthwhile. You, you showed us that that we, you really do love us, and we're thankful for that. And I am very thankful for that. Seven years ago, I was interviewing for this job. Seven years ago. It's been seven years. Um, and I am thankful that the Lord moved me here. I'm thankful. And it's strange for me to say that as a Texan. You know that. But I'm thankful to the Lord that he, that he brought me here to Wildwood. I'm thankful for what this morning I was driving in. I said, Lord, I'm thankful for the church that you that brought me to. I'm thankful for the church that you've given me. I'm thankful for the ministry that uh, you have developed here. And so, uh, Wildwood, thank you for uh, allowing me to be your pastor. I am very grateful. Amen. I know you are. I appreciate that. All right, so back to Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39. This is frequently compared to ascending a mountain peak and pausing at the top to sort of take in the majestic views. It's an emotional climax of Paul's defense of his gospel. Before he moves on and before we move on to the next major section of his letter, which is God's sovereignty in election in chapters 9 through 11, before he moves on to that, Paul concludes this section of sin and justification and sanctification in Romans 1-8 through with the most thorough and encouraging pastoral encouragement found in Scripture. He presents three premises and three promises which logically follow those premises. Christian, are you struggling with your identity this morning? Do you ever wrestle with what God thinks about you? Maybe, you've, maybe you look back on your life and you say, well, I've never, I have not lived up to everyone else's expectations, so I don't know what God thinks about me. Do you fear your future? Do you live in anxiety about the days ahead? Do you wonder what will happen to you when you die. Well, if you're in Christ, this passage ought to put all of those fears and doubts to bed. Let's jump in here to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, what a amazing passage. It is like the, the, the peak of a, of a mountaintop and looking back over all that Paul has said, and our hearts swell with, with joy and gratitude and comfort. All because of Jesus. And all because you love us. Lord, I pray that if there's any fear, if there's any doubt, if there's any uh, anxiety or uncertainty about where we stand with you, that today would be the day that dies. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified, and we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as I said earlier, Paul gives us here three premises and three promises. The first one is God is for us, so who can be against us? The second is God justifies us, so who can condemn us? And the third is, Christ died, was raised, and is interceding for us, so who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now, we're going to spend the next three weeks unpacking this passage, because there's too much here to do it in one Sunday, so we're going to go through each of those three premises and promises over the next three weeks, and then we're going to go into Advent, it's already Christmas almost. And then we're going to come back after the Advent, and we're going to go into, at the new year, we're going to go into Romans chapter 9. So we'll finish out this section, and then we'll go into Advent, and then come back to Romans 9. So we have to understand, before we jump into this passage, we we need to remember how Romans 8 began. There is, therefore, now no condemnation. Paul said in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's a universal declaration. That's an unequivocal declaration. There is now no condemnation. There was condemnation. If there wasn't condemnation, then the fact that there is now no condemnation is not good news at all. There was condemnation. Paul said in Romans 3.11 and 12, no one seeks for God All have turned aside. No one does good. That that is the spiritual condition of humanity. That's all of us. No one does good. No one seeks for God. All of us turn aside. That's the spiritual state of mankind. That's our natural spiritual state. That's the spiritual state we were born into. And because of this universal condition, we all stand condemned. For the wages of sin is death, Paul said. There was condemnation for all, but now there is no condemnation for who? Well, Paul answers that question in Romans 8.1 when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are justified, or we are made right with God, by faith. Romans 5.11, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The result is that condemnation is lifted off of us. We were condemned, but now in Christ, we are no longer condemned. That is good news, is it not? We were condemned because no one does good. All have turned away. No one seeks for God, and the wages of sin is death. We were all condemned, but now, in Christ Jesus, we are not condemned any longer. That is good news. And this is all true because of God's love. Not because God felt compelled to do this, but because God loved us to do this. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ's death on the cross is the clear demonstration that God's feeling or affection towards us is love. And if this is how God demonstrates his love, that he would send his own son to die for us, then we know that we are safe from his wrath. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, the blood of Jesus, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Praise the Lord. There was condemnation, there was wrath, there was death, and now there is no longer. Why? Because Jesus died for you and died for me. And when we put our faith in him, we are saved from God's just wrath. Christian, you are free. You have been saved from his wrath, and you have this great glory that Paul talked about earlier passages in Romans 8. You have this great glory that you're eagerly waiting for. Paul has spent seven chapters carefully articulating the gospel that he laid out all the way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For us, that was f- like 15 months ago for Paul it was probably 15 minutes ago. But it is seven chapters. Look at what he says in Romans 1:16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now let me spend seven chapters unpacking this powerful, saving gospel. Seven chapters of gospel exegesis. And now Paul asks in verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? In other words, how are we going to respond to all that Paul has just told us? All that he's written so far, how do you respond to it? The things that I've highlighted just here, just in a few verses, how do you respond to life and freedom and no condemnation? and salvation and eternal inheritance and glory that awaits for you and life and peace with God. What do you say to these things? In other words, what is your conclusion? You know, if I stood here and I told you that I was giving each one of you on this this Sunday, I was giving you a million dollars, there would be movement. Wouldn't there? There would, be, there would be thanksgiving. There would be uh, praise. There would be tears. There would be shouts. There would be joy. Do you not know that what you have been given in Jesus Christ is infinitely more valuable than a million dollars? How easy it is for that truth to become routine for us. I think that's why Paul takes a moment to pause right here and say what you have been given is infinitely more valuable than anything you could be given here on earth. And it should result in praise and thanksgiving and joy and even shouts of acclamation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Do you really comprehend what you have been given? That you are a co-heir with Christ? I I just want you to think. Sometimes it's easy for us to say, I'm a co-heir with Christ. Maybe you don't even say that because you don't even know what it means. But that's what Paul has told us. We are co-heirs with Christ. Christ is the firstborn among many brothers. And who are the many brothers? Us. We're co-heir with Christ. So, so what is Christ is ours. And it's gonna be ours for eternity. Have you grown callous to that? Maybe, maybe we just can't even fathom this reality but we should try am i right we should try to think about and and, and comprehend all that we have in Christ let's well, first by establishing are you in Christ because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so the so the where we began is are you in Christ Not only do you comprehend this reality, but do you apprehend or do you lay hold of this reality? Do you cling to this reality? Do you you put your hope in this reality? Do you put all of your eggs in the basket of Jesus? If so, what is your conclusion? After reading all that you've read In Romans 1 through 8, what is the logical end of these things? Here is Paul's conclusion, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So our first premise and our first promise. First, let's begin with the premise. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, that's not really a question. That's not a hypothetical situation. Paul has labored to make the point that God is, in fact, for us. So it's not really a question. It's a logical statement. If this is true, then what follows is logically true. If this, then that. Now, Paul has already proven that God is for us, so we really could say, since God is for us, who can be against us? Since God is for us, you and I have great reason to have confidence in this life. You and I may feel vulnerable. We may be even experiencing a season of defeat. But there is a reality that supersedes your feelings and your experiences. God is for us. Even if you don't feel that way right now in this moment, there is a reality that supersedes how you feel and what you see. God is for us. And since God is for us, Paul says, who can be against us? Well, obviously, Paul, the whole world can be against us. There's innumerable foes who stand against the church, against the followers of Christ. There's a number of of forces that can be against us. There are fools and haters and persecutors, And forces of darkness like Satan and his demons and, oh, by the way, your own wicked flesh wages war against you. Jesus warned us, in this world, you will have tribulation. And Paul asks, who can be against us? Well, Paul is not naive. Sometimes it's you and I that are naive. Sometimes it's you and I that don't get it. What Paul is not, Paul is not saying, well, there's not gonna be anyone that, that stands against you, but what Paul is saying is no one is gonna stand in victory against you. Paul, Paul is saying to us that there are lots of forces that can be against us, but who are they compared to God? Who can possibly pluck us from the victory that has been won by Jesus Christ. And you know, God takes everything. We've already, we've already looked at this in Romans eight twenty eight, but God takes everything that the enemy throws against us and he uses it for our good. So everything, even the things that hurt, even the things that are, that are hard, are ultimately used for our good and become a win for us. God is for us. No one can ultimately prevail over us. That's the premise. Now the promise, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the premise is that God is for us, but how do we know that God is for us. Like how do we know that without a shadow of a doubt? What proves to us that God is in fact for us? Jesus is why we have confidence. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus is why we have confidence that our, that, that, that God's disposition toward us is one of love is one of peace, is one of mercy and grace. It's why we know that we can go to the Father and relate to him as a child. He, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. If, if that language sounds familiar to you, it's basically an echo from Genesis twenty two twelve, where God says to Abraham, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Now that was a foreshadow of what God would do who did not withhold his only son. And ultimately, Abraham believed in God, believed, had faith in God that he would bring Isaac back and he did not withhold his own son. And God providentially provided a sacrificial ram who was a foretaste of his only son, a prefigure of Christ. And it's not ironic, but rather it is prophetic that upon that same mountain, 2,000 years later, Jesus prayed a prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying to his father, your will be done. And hours later was delivered up to be hung upon a cross. God provided the ultimate sacrificial lamb by not withholding his own son, but by giving him up for us. The the 19th century Baptist pastor Octavius Winslow noted that it was not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, who ultimately offered up Jesus, but the Father for love. Brother and sister, how can you and I still doubt the heart of God for us after all he has done to save us? Is that not illogical? Is it not illogical to imagine, well, well, God gave us what he values and treasures most, but I don't know if I can trust him to give me the trivial things. It is not logical. If he loves us enough to give up his son, Paul says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God was willing to give up his son, which was an irrefutable representation that he is for us, then it follows logically that he's not going to withhold anything good. but rather he's going to give us all things beneficial. That phrase, all things, refers back to Romans chapter 8.28, where Paul says that he works all things for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. If he works all things for good, then even those things, the things that we would look at and we would say, God, take this away from me, even those things are good. And are beneficial. Peter also speaks to this. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Notice that everything we need for life and godliness Everything that you and I need to do everything that God has called us to do is given to us through Jesus Christ, through the knowledge that is the personal saving knowledge of Jesus. And Paul says here in verse 32 that God is going to graciously give to us all things with him, that is, with Jesus And so we come into this personal saving knowledge of Jesus and we get Jesus, that's the first thing, we get Jesus. And then along with Jesus, we get all things that we need to do everything that God has called us to do. We get all things that pertain to life and godliness. The Lord has given you everything that you need to live a life that honors him and glorifies him. You know, if this were a movie, if we were watching the, the, the book of Romans in a movie format, then the, the musical score would be at a crescendo at this moment. This is an emotional climax for Paul. How does your heart respond to the truth of the gospel? If you're in Christ... You ought to have confidence in God's gracious providence, knowing that because he gave you Jesus, he's not going to withhold anything from you that you need to do what he's asked you to do. And everything that he provides and everything that he withholds and everything that he allows and everything that he prevents is for your good. And for his glory. This should fill us with confidence. This should cause us to walk through life and say, God, you are for me. What can possibly prevail against me? I wonder if you really get that. It's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to affirm it. It's one thing to to give a hearty amen. But do you really get this? That God is for us. Who can be against us? And God gave you his most treasured possession, his son. Why would he possibly withhold from you something that is good? What would it look like? What would your life look like if you became fully convinced of this reality? Wednesday before last, I was down with the kids and with the youth and I said to them that it is normal for Christians to put their whole life in the palm of their hands and to say to the Lord, your will be done. It was kind of cute because I told them, okay, now put, you know, put your education in your hands. Put your health in your hands. Put your future spouse in your hands. And they were looking at me like I had a third eye. <laughs> and I was trying to convey to some of the preschoolers, uh, <laughs> the teenagers got it a little bit better. It, put your future spouse, put your plans, put your health, put your hopes, put your dreams, put them all in the palm of your hands and offer it out to the Lord and say, Lord, your will be done. I told them that is normal Christianity. We are raising up 50 long-term, blank-check, foreign nation, give-everything-to-Jesus missionaries from this church. And many of them, amen, and many of them are right now in the nursery and the kids' ministry and youth ministry. And maybe some of them are going to follow some of our senior adults who have said, you know what, I'm in a place that I can give up everything and go right now. But we believe this. We mean this. It is normal and it is right for Christians to put everything in the palm of their hands and say, Lord, your will be done. You know what is not normal? Normal is for Christians to say, you know, thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you that there was wrath, but there's no wrath any longer. Thank you that I get eternal life. Thank you that I have an eternal inheritance. Thank you that you've adopted me into the family of God. Thank you that you've not withheld anything from me. But I'm going to take it from here because I trust you with my soul for eternity, but I do not trust you with my life here and now. I do not trust you to provide. I do not trust you to lead. I do not trust you to protect. And so with all due respect, Lord, I'm gonna take this back. That may be popular Christianity, But it is not normal. Normal Christianity says, Lord, you are for me. Who can be against me? You gave me Jesus, and I know that you are going to give me everything that I need to do, everything that you've asked me to do. You're going to work in my life for good, and you're not going to withhold anything good from me. I know that I can trust you, and I know that wherever you lead, I'm going to follow. And whatever you allow in my life, and whatever you prevent, whatever you provide, and whatever you withhold, all of it is for my good and the good of others, and for your glory. And Lord, I'm okay with that. That's normal Christianity. At least it's biblical Christianity. It's what Jesus meant when he said that if anyone wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. He says if anyone would save his life, he'll lose it. But anyone who would lose his life for my sake will find it. What else would change if you allowed yourselves to be fully convinced of the premise that God is for you, and so who can be against you, what else would change? How would this change how you engage with the world around you? I think of Jesus' exhortation in Matthew 10:28, "And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I hear people say, Pastor, I'm afraid to share my faith. Because it feels like when they reject the gospel, they're rejecting me. I get that. I understand how hard it is to feel rejection from your coworkers. Well, not here at the church. (laughs) I felt like I should stipulate. I have been in the the army for a long time. I know what it's like to feel rejection from your family and your neighbors. I know that it is difficult to put yourself out there and to go to them with a message that the Bible says is folly is foolishness to the unbelieving world. I I get that. I hear people say, I don't want to encourage my kids to be missionaries. You know, about nine months ago, we brought in Dr. Todd Arend, who is kind of a missionary strategist, and he spent the weekend with us Was it a month ago? Was was it just nine months ago or was it a year ago? A year ago. And he said to us, you know, the the greatest distractor of children growing up and, and going onto the mission field is Christian parents. The greatest force that works against our obedience to Jesus is people who call themselves Christians speaking to their kids, no, you're not gonna go to dangerous places. I'm not going to give you to the Lord. I understand how fear works. I have four children. I want my kids to buy houses five minutes from me. I want that just like you do. But what I really want is my children to be faithful. And that's why when I pray with my kids at night, Lord, where will you have them go with the gospel? If it's Kelowna or Bettendorf or Port Byron, praise the Lord. They'll go there with the gospel just like you are and just like I am. But maybe it's a dangerous place. Maybe the Lord says, you know what? I want you to go to a dangerous place, to an uncomfortable place. You have the availability. You're in the right spot. I want you to let everything go. I want you to lay it all down. What would it change in your life if you truly believed the premise that God is for us and no one can prevail over us. The same God who stood with Moses and Joshua as they led Israel and Egypt, uh, out of Egypt and into the promised land respectively. the same God who promised Joshua that he would never leave him nor forsake him. The same God who powerfully drove out the inhabitants of Canaan. And worked in a way that they could never imagine, anticipate, or predict. That same God speaks to you and me through the Apostle Paul. If God is for us, who could possibly stand against us? That is what the Israelites should have seen when they first went into the wilderness. That first generation of Israel should have looked at the the miraculous and mighty hand of God who delivered them out of Egypt, just as he has delivered you out of the domain of darkness. They should have seen that he is able to do all that he promises to do, that he's able to work in a way that they could not even imagine. And they should have they should have anticipated seeing God move in miraculous ways. That's what they should have seen. And it's easy to read the Old Testament and say, "Ah, you you Israelites, how dull, dull-hearted and hard-headed. But are they not a mirror of us? The Israelites having observed the ten plagues, the Israelites having observed the parting of the Red Sea, (laughs) the Israelites having observed the manna coming down from heaven and the water from the rock, should have had courage of heart to say, Lord, we will follow you into the promised land, and we will anticipate that you will work for us and no one can prevail against us. And that same God who did all those things is telling us through the Apostle Paul, God is for us, who can be against us? So what needs to change this morning for you? What needs to change this morning for you? What is God calling you to? How is he asking you to trust him? To anticipate that he would work in a way that you cannot predict. One of the things that the Lord has taught me in my time in ministry is that the Lord works in mysterious ways. And when I face hardship and difficulty, I begin to look for his miraculous mighty hand to work in a way that I could never predict, in a way that I could never plot out and figure out. What step of faith do you need to take right now? How does your life need to change so that you become a normal Christian? Putting everything in the palm of your hands and saying to the Lord, your will be done. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your powerful, mighty hand. You have provided for us and you promise Lord, that you will give us everything that we need to do what you have called us to do. Forgive us for hard hearts and hard heads. Lord, help us to glorify you. Because what we can say without equivocation is that our God is stronger. Our God is greater. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.